0: Amen. Welcome church. I'm so joyful to be together, to be joined together again tonight as we remember the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since the death of Christ, believers in Christ, or global members of the body of Christ, or sons and daughters of the family of God, or the sheep of his flock, have traditionally marked this as an important day and week on the Big C Church calendar to continue to affirm and to meditate upon, to remember and to be renewed by the atoning work and the sacrifice of the Son of God, the Christ. And this occasion of Good Friday historically has been preceded by the remembrance of the Passover and now is joined together with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So this time should help us to remember and to help us to be transformed, even catalyze a new season of sanctification for us as we progressively come to a greater understanding year by year how essential the gospel is for our salvation and for our transformation into Christ likeness in every area. So tonight we will spend time in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open there now and join me in turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. And let's pray together to ask God to be with us as we remember the Christ and the crucifixion and how we are transformed by that message. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. We ask by your grace that you would help us to see the message of the Christ and him crucified, that we would celebrate as the early church did and as we continue to do as Christians, historically since the time of Christ, that we would remember the day we would celebrate and we would reflect upon and even be transformed by the memory of the crucifixion of the Christ. I pray, God, that we would join in the saints throughout history as we remember. And God, that we too tonight would see the essential act of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved us from our sins and how this cross continues to transform us today. God, we never outrun the cross. We never go beyond the cross. I pray that the believers who are watching this tonight would only deepen in their understanding of the cross. They would understand progressively for the rest of their lives more and more deeply the magnitude of their sin and the pervasiveness into every facet. Even when we want to do right, evil is lying right at hand. And even when we move into some place of change, we are in danger of a different form of sin in every way. Help us to see then that we need the cross because of the magnitude of our sin and help us to understand the depth and the breadth that the cross of Christ provides in regards of our salvation and our transformation. God, I pray that you would use the book of Peter and this passage to bring to light the memory of the cross. And God, I pray that we would remember it in the week to come, even in the couple of days to come, as we celebrate the resurrection. Let us be changed tonight. In Jesus name, amen. If you have your Bible, once again, we can start reading in 1 Peter, chapter two. We're gonna look at verses 22 through 25, and we're gonna talk through it. It says this in verse 22, Peter writes, "'He committed no sin, "'neither was deceit found in his mouth. "'When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer. Of your soul. What an incredible passage. As we look at this, as we begin to look at our passage, we can first understand the whole point of this whole book of 1 Peter. Peter's intent in writing this letter, and therefore its main point, is to instruct believers how to live in light of persecution. Therefore, they are being instructed by Peter to continue to live right and do so by following the example of Christ who suffered unjustly. So Peter here is instructing believers how in light of persecution, they are to continue to live rightly. And the main example that he shows these believers is Jesus Christ who is righteous even when suffering unjustly. That's the whole purpose. The early church were those who had recently believed in the Jesus, the the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus as the Son of God, the long-awaited anointed one. And most of them, shortly after Christ was crucified, had just believed. So these are young, new believers in the faith. Christ had just been crucified and resurrected. And these believers are now seeking to honor God by being transformed by his word and by the apostles' teaching and by spreading the message of the Christ. And in doing so, they are experiencing great persecution and suffering. And by the Holy Spirit, Peter is helping them to live righteously, giving them instruction from the word of God, from the Lord Jesus himself and from the Holy Spirit, that in light of their persecution and suffering, they can live righteously because they can follow the example of Christ himself who suffered unjustly and continued to live rightly. Therefore, this book, and especially this passage, is a pattern then. The pattern is the suffering that they're experiencing, the edification to live right, and the example of Christ. That's the pattern that we see over and over and over again. The suffering they're experiencing, the edification to live right, and the example of Christ who suffered and was righteous. And this is repeated. And so in chapter 2 of Peter, which is our focus, we can see this clear pattern. He gives instructions in the beginning to live right. And then he shares Christ's example. And then he instructs them in light of their persecution and suffering. And so Peter, what he's doing here in this book and in this chapter, is continually bringing his readers back to the picture of the suffering servant who died on the cross. The picture is that Peter continues to bring them back to how Christ suffered and yet was righteous. And so he's bringing back the main point and bringing back, as an example, Christ's suffering. And so in light of this, this helps us immensely to reflect on the suffering Of Christ and the cross. If we were to seek to find somewhere in all of the Bible to reflect on Christ and his cross and to see his suffering in light of that and his righteousness even in the face of it, there's no better book to look at than 1 Peter because this is the main point. So if we want to see repeated pictures of Christ's suffering on the cross, we look at 1 Peter as he shows us great pictures of it. And these verses specifically, now in verses 22 through 25, Peter is particularly drawing on the language and the theology that is used in what is called the fourth servant song in Isaiah, which is Isaiah 52 through 53, 12. So this is probably circulating, this, that passage, that portion of scripture from Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, which you know is a well-known passage of the suffering servant, the picture of the suffering servant. And this is a circulating hymn now that is being circulated amongst the early church. And Peter now is here drawing extensively from that picture. This was probably circulating as a hymn. And this would be helpful to Peter's audience because it contains one of the most rich, messages of Jesus's death. So Peter is helping his readers and helping us also to reflect upon the suffering servant and to reflect upon his righteousness, the Christ, his cross. So if we were tonight on a good Friday to look at the suffering servant and Jesus and his crucifixion, there's no better place to look. Peter, as he draws on Isaiah 53 and paints portrait after portrait of the suffering Christ, helps us to have insight into its content. So let's walk through it. The first thing that we see as we look at the suffering of Christ is that Jesus Christ, number one, lived sinlessly and trusting himself to the Father. Jesus Christ lived sinlessly. Number one, Jesus Christ lived sinlessly entrusting himself to the father. And we see this in verses 22 through 23. Let's read it in our passage. Verses 22 through 23 say this, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is what we start with. Number one, Jesus Christ lived sinlessly, entrusting himself to his father in light of Peter's call to believers to live righteous in the face of persecution. Peter is now, as he has done repeatedly in the book, calling believers to gaze upon Christ's example in doing this. And he tells us that in the face of persecution, Jesus committed no sin. This is what we see to begin verse 22. We read, he committed no sin. Jesus came to his very own people and the Jews, the common man, the religious leaders of the time rejected the Messiah. They hurled insults at him. They didn't believe his message. They mocked his love, his teaching and his atoning work. Isaiah 53, where Peter is drawing upon in this passage shows us explicitly. It says, Isaiah writes, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, Jesus, before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. During his life, Jesus was despised. He was despised even in his hometown, even in his own household. And he was considered to be offensive. Matthew records this. It says that they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Matthew 13, 57. During his trial, even, he was called a blasphemer for testifying about who he was. During the time with Pilate, the crowd yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Matthew tells us and shows us this account. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? He was righteous. He committed no sin, but they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Matthew 27, 22 through 23. They scourged and they whipped him. By the ones whom he loved, he created, and he came to save. During the preparation of the crucifixion, he was put on a place of being mocked in front of everyone. He was hurt. He was spit upon. And Peter tells us that in the face of this persecution, Jesus committed no sin. You see, again, Peter is emphasizing here Jesus's response in the face of persecution, this is during a very particular time of Jesus's life, namely the last three years of his life. This is an example to the believers who are called to live righteous in the face of persecution. This is exemplifying Jesus's maltreatment and yet his sinlessness. That's what it's pointing us to. Peter tells us that in the face of persecution, Jesus committed no sin. This is what we need to understand and first gaze upon. He never once succumbed to anger or to retaliation or to being hurt and retaliating with that hurt in a sinful way. He didn't pursue the path of pride. He didn't hurt because he was hurt. He committed no sin, Peter says. He did not slander or gossip. In fact, the very next part of verse 22 tells us this explicitly. Peter tells us, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he tells us that he committed no sin and deceit was not even found in his mouth. The prophet Isaiah tells us again in Isaiah 53, 7 this time, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silence. so he opened not his mouth. He didn't sinfully control. He didn't anxiously make demands. He didn't stew on his need to be right. He wasn't selfish. He wasn't quarrelsome, either by habit or by premeditated choice. Even more startling, he committed no sin in his heart. No sin even in his heart while suffering unjustly. No battling with them in his mind. No ill will or hate towards them in his heart. No bitterness controlled him and no proving himself right in his own head. He committed no sin because his heart was pure and it was full of love. Luke tells us in Luke 6:45 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And therefore we know Jesus' heart was pure because his mouth spoke no deceit. His heart was pure. And therefore, verse 23, as we go on in this, Peter tells us when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He was gossiped about. He was accused wrongly. He was despised. He was even considered evil. And he did not feel the need to retaliate sinfully. He did not feel the necessary urge to vindicate himself. He to accuse others of wrongdoing in return just to get even and to prove himself right and to prove them wrong. Even more so, verse 23 tells us when he suffered, he did not threaten. When he experienced sorrow, he endured it. He did not make demands in attempt to get his way or to punish sinfully. He was the example of what Peter says a little earlier in this chapter. In 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20, it says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What a gracious thing. He endured sorrows, endured it. Mindful of God while suffering unjustly. First Peter, when he continues, when Peter continues in that uh, passage in 19 through 20, he says, for what credit is it? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And this was Jesus's response. He didn't do anything wrong. He suffered unjustly. He didn't sin and he was beaten for it. And yet he endured. He did not revile in return or threaten, but here's what he did do. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly with sorrow in his heart and with silence on his lips. He continued to trust his father. Each time that it came up, each time that suffering or persecution happened, each time he thought about it and it brought that pit to his stomach, he continued to trust he continued to entrust himself to his father, that his father knew and his father saw and his father knew the truth and his father would take care of him one way or the other and that he would continue to bless his obedience and that's all he really wanted. So even in, the light, of, in light of suffering and persecution, Jesus is the prime example. He committed no sin, He committed himself to his father. He suffered unjustly, but he trusted his God. And all he wanted was his father to bless his obedience and to know the truth. Not out of spite, but out of humility and out of love, he pursued humility. Peter says later uh, in this book, uh, in light of some of the context and, and what's right in the face of persecution, Jesus did graciously and perfectly this. It says in 1 Peter 5, 5-7, through 7, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Again, this is in light of instructing believers how to respond in face of persecution. And this is what he's telling them to do. And Jesus was the perfect example of this. It says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus pursued humility. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, believers in face of suffering and persecution under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is what Christ did perfectly in in the face of his persecution and ill treatment, because he knew that he would be the prime example for our humility while suffering. Peter says in chapter five of the same book, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever, amen. And Christ knew this. He knew that he would be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. By his father. So he was mindful of God. He endured sorrow while suffering unjustly. He was our example. He committed no sin. 1 Peter 2 20 through 21, again, what credit is it? If when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and you suffer and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of our God. And this is what he says For to this you have been called. We as believers have been called to follow this example. Because Christ also suffered for us. And in doing this, he left an example so that we might follow in his footsteps. Peter's telling the church here that they would follow his example while suffering persecution. And the main example is how Christ lived righteously, sinless in the face of persecution. So in the face of persecution, we see first that Christ committed no sin. With the cross looming, with rejection in his face, he instead wished that all men would come to him and be saved. As Matthew records in eleven twenty-eight through 29, this was his heart. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here was his attitude. For I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ultimately, out of love for the Father and so that he could glorify his Father, showing the world what his Father is like and so that he could lovingly and successfully complete his task of being a perfect sacrifice, no sin. He loved others and he committed no sin in the face of the cross. We read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And so first what we see as we reflect upon, as Peter shows us a picture of and brings us back to the suffering servant, we see number one, that Christ lived sinlessly entrusting himself to his father. The second thing that we see in our passage is that Jesus Christ died willingly, taking our sins upon himself. Jesus Christ lived sin, uh, sinlessly, entrusting himself to his father, and Jesus Christ died willingly, taking our sins upon himself. As, as we read verse 24a, the, the very beginning of verse 24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness right even just in the beginning there before we move on to the call of us he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree and so as we look at this his sinless loving perfection christ he submitted himself to his father and yet continued even to the point of death submitting himself to a, as a willing sacrifice he himself bore our sins in his body On the tree. He endured the suffering of the cross. Ultimately, his suffering led him to a great suffering upon the cross, in which he died, and the wrath of God for all of sin, past, present, and future, was laid upon Jesus. Although he was righteous, although he was sinless, For some of the the purposes that we're going to see in the next couple of verses, Jesus died. And and what did it bring? What do we see even in this next couple of verses? It brought us atonement for our sins. It brought us freedom from the bondage of sin. It brought us eternal life. It brings us a new God-glorifying earthly life. It enables us to suffer as he did and do so righteously. His death on the cross, it brings us healing from our sin and it reconciles us our wandering hearts from caring and protecting ourselves to a caring and protecting shepherd. How how, We must savor this cross. We must look upon it. Verse 24, as we look upon this willing sacrifice that that Jesus is, the, the willingness to die on our behalf, to take our sins upon him, Peter tells us that he himself, if you look at the verse with me, he himself, Even though he was innocent, by responding righteously to suffering, he entrusted himself to his Father, and therefore he was undeserving of this suffering. He did not sin, but on the contrary, he was righteous, but he willingly suffered. He himself, he took it upon himself. He bore our sins himself. This was Jesus, the one who took away all sins, the Messiah the only one who could overcome the sin and the punishment that we deserve. He did not sin. On the contrary, he bore, which means that he carried up. He carried up or that he suffered for. This is the picture. He himself, he continued to suffer and to live righteous, even to the point of death, where he upon the cross himself carried up or suffered for, our sins, that means our offenses or our crimes towards God, which are righteously punishable by eternal death. He carried those up. He suffered for those sins. It says that he did, did so in his body. In his body, if you look at the verse, it t- Peter tells us that meaning that he suffered death that we deserved. He died. He was physically killed and separated. The God God, He loved the father he knew turned away because all of our sin was cast upon him. He himself, Jesus, the suffering servant, endured suffering and lived righteously, entrusting himself to the father, even to the point of the cross and even on the cross, he bore or carried up our sins, the punishment that we deserve, our offenses before God and He did so in his body by being punished to death and even his father turning away. And Peter tells us that he did this on the tree. Literally what he's referring to and what he says and what it means here is the wood. He did so on the wood, which we know the wood is the cross. And so Peter is pointing us to the suffering servant who went all the way to the cross on our behalf. This is the great example that Peter is showing these believers of how to suffer righteously in the face of persecution. The main example is Christ and we can gain insight and learn from this and see this great picture of this suffering servant as Peter continually draws back to its picture. We see this Christ who died on the wood, on the tree. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the righteous yet suffering servant, the Christ who went to the cross for our sins. First of all, we see in our passage, Peter points us to Jesus Christ living sinlessly, entrusting himself to the Father. Secondly, we see that Jesus Christ died willingly, taking our sins upon himself. And that's what we celebrate today on Good Friday when Christ went to the cross, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And thirdly, lastly, as we see in our passage, Jesus Christ has called us to live righteously, being justified and transformed. We saw, number one, Jesus Christ lived sinlessly, entrusting himself to the Father. Number two, Jesus Christ died willingly, taking our sins upon himself. And this has a transforming effect for the believers who are reading Peter's encouragement to live righteous in the face of persecution. And for us as believers in light of the finished work of the cross, Jesus Christ has called us now to live righteously, being justified by faith and being transformed by the message of the gospel. We see in verses 24b through 25, it says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's the purpose. If you read the beginning words in the middle of that verse 24, it says that we, These are the. this is the purpose, this, this is why he did so. Here's what he hopes to accomplish in us, that believers, us, Peter is writing to a people who have already trusted in the gospel. This is to you who have trusted in Christ, who have believed the gospel, who have seen his perfect life, who has seen his willing death, and now are being transformed by the gospel. Here's his instructions to you believers. The the instruction is to live right. That we, here's the purpose, in light of suffering, in light of Christ's example, we too might die to sin, commit no sin, that we might as we live, not live wrongly, but live rightly, even in the face of suffering and persecution, which is his main encouragement here to these people, that we would live rightly, even in the face of suffering, and that we might might not only die to sin, but live to righteousness. Like Christ, he lived righteously. This cross should conform you into the image of Christ. It should transform your heart, because why? It says, we have been healed in verse 25. We have been, or 24, we have been healed by his wounds. By his wounds, we have been healed. These are believers reading this. Peter says to them, by his wounds, look at this, ready? You have been healed. He's writing to believers and encouraging them in light of the example of Christ's perfect life and suffering on the cross and their healing and their being made dead to sin and alive to righteousness, that they have already been healed and that they would be transformed now. He says, you were straying like sheep. You were walking away and now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The one who's caring for you, he'll care for you in face of suffering and persecution. You can live to righteousness and you can die to sin. Believers, Peter is saying, you can die to sin and live to righteousness. You can trust the shepherd, the overseer, and the carer of your souls. You've been healed from your sin. Therefore, live righteously in light of being justified and being transformed. And as we... Close this. Peter has a very specific application in mind in pointing them to the cross. And it's that they would be transformed and live righteous in a very specific situation in light of suffering. And in what greater ways does the cross call us to be transformed than in the light of suffering, than in light of suffering? The, The greatest way the cross calls us to be transformed is to be transformed when we suffer. Christ is our perfect example, the cross. There's no greater uh, picture that the cross gives us than to be righteous while we suffer. There's no greater way that we can see a a Christ's perfect example and be changed by it than to look at it and see how the cross of Christ calls us to be transformed in light of our suffering. Christ is our perfect example. The cross is the particular instance. So Christ calls us to a God-glorifying, love-purposed, gospel-advancing, suffering. That's what he calls us to. That we would be like him and live rightly, respond rightly as Peter is calling these believers to. In the face of suffering and persecution, as we look to the perfect sinlessness and the suffering servant who lived righteously, we too are transformed in this way and we can learn from this cross how to live righteously when we suffer. And so church, this should encourage you to suffer well. To suffer well even in light of persecution and how to live as Christ did. If you're going to be transformed by meditating on the cross this Good Friday, let it be to transform you to suffer well and to endure hardship and persecution and to live righteously in response. I think about 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 22 through 26, Paul mentions that we should patiently endure evil. That would be a good application for this. As Christ patiently endured evil as he suffered unjustly. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 8a as we've been meditating upon. And how we are not resentful as one of the aspects of great love. Or what about 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul speaks of his own weakness and suffering and persecution. And how he said he was content with that weakness so that Christ would be glorified. That would be a good application for us. Or how about in Romans 8, 28 through 29, when we're suffering, or when we face persecution, that we would understand that he works all things for the good of those who love him, loved him and are called according to his purpose. And verse 29 tells us that purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son. We can't take 28 and 29 and never separate it. He does all of this good work to conform us to his son. So even when we're suffering, we see how he's doing good, conforming us in the image of his son. Or how about Genesis chapter 50, when we see Joseph and he says, in light of suffering, who am I to judge what you have done, but what you meant for harm and evil, God has meant it for good. And so may we too see our suffering and persecution that way and live in a path of obedience. Or how about Philippians four that tells us not to be anxious, but to to send those prayers to God, even when we're suffering and we're persecuted and that we would be then gentle to others because God has our requests. You see, in light of the cross, we learn to suffer well and to live rightly in the face of persecution as we look to Christ's example. Jesus Christ lives sin- sinlessly and trusting himself to his father. Jesus Christ died willingly, taking our sins upon himself. And Jesus Christ has called us to live righteously, being justified and transformed church. As we close tonight, as we've reflected upon the cross and as we have have sought to be transformed by it, let us now symbolically remember by participating and taking in communion. If you've seen our instructions on social media or even have um, gotten things ready up until this point, it'd be a good time for you to pull those elements out. And if you haven't, you can do so. And as we look at this, and as I seek to shepherd you through taking communion in your home, which is different for us, I want to encourage you. This is a picture that the early believers show us, even in Acts chapter 2. But I want to tell, tell you firstly that in this act, as I instruct you and shepherd you through this act of taking communion in your home to respond to this, that this is first and foremost as we take communion, it's for believers. So those who are, have affirmed and demonstrate the fruit of one who has been saved. As I shepherd you through this, I want to first encourage you that this is for believers. The, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's for the church. Those who have responded, affirm, and demonstrate the fruit of one who has been saved. And listen, church, as your pastor I'm aware that in your homes this may cause an obvious distinction. And while there might be sorrow there or while it just may be because certain children have not understood the gospel yet, I think you can view this as a great opportunity. You see, distinction isn't always bad. Instead, the Bible describes it as causing repentance and faith in nonbelievers. When distinction is made, It actually causes faith and repentance in non-believers. Therefore, this is a good time as a family to follow the Bible's instructions in this being for the believer, in the Lord's table being for believers. And then it's a great opportunity to have discussion after. So this might cause discussion to answer any questions about why one couldn't take of the Lord's table. Or what it means to believe in the gospel and to be saved. Or even asking questions among your family or your roommates about why one hasn't trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This distinction and this separation of believers taking and non-believers not creates great opportunity for us to discuss whether saving faith has occurred and why or why not. As we discuss this, this is good. In fact, you know, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that as often as we take of the Lord's table, we actually proclaim his death until he returns again. That's awesome. Because this is actually one of the purposes of the Lord's table. That we would proclaim, this is a proclamation of death of Christ and it affirms the gospel to the ones who are watching. And so as we take of the table, it's not just for reflection. It's not just for repentance, but it's for proclamation that those watching would see and hear and understand the gospel. And so you can find this instruction helpful if you you want to look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so Paul tells us that this is for the church, for believers. And I encourage you to do that in your home, to follow those instructions and allow it to provide great opportunity for you to be a proclamation to everyone who's watching around you. And then, as Paul instructs, let us take this reverently after a time of examining ourselves. And so as you begin the process now, I read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so to, to you too, church, I say these words now, and I encourage you, believers in Christ, to examine yourself and reverently spend time before God, repent of sin, And then when you're ready, take after the time you've taken alone with the Lord and to repent individually or as a family, take the elements in remembrance of Christ. And church, I know that God will use this and I pray that he transforms you through it. And so as you follow these instructions, remember that Jesus Christ, he lived sinlessly and he died willingly and he calls us to live righteously. Let's pray. Father, as we come now and hear your words in First Peter, help us to live our lives in light of these truths, not to forget, but to be transformed that we too, as Peter instructs these believers, would live righteously. We would live right in the face of persecution, reflecting upon Jesus and his cross and his example. And as we look upon this cross and this suffering servant and this Messiah on this Good Friday, as is so fitting, as Peter so often brings us back to that picture, I pray that this responding in communion would be a catalyst for even a new season of sanctification for us as we meditate on these truths continually. Bless this time as we sit now and reflect and remember and respond and proclaim by taking of this cup and of this bread and offering our lives as sacrifices to you. We ask you to bless this time now in Jesus' name, amen.